This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. I regret to inform you, you're on Chapel Probation, a podcast that takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities. And today we have another author. Greetings, reprobates. As the ongoing conversation about deconstruction continues, both here and elsewhere, I sometimes meet someone with eerily similar experiences to mine. Now, I didn't have nightmarish experiences in church, just, you know, marginally awful. In, in fact, I thrived in that setting because I worked my ass off to fit in overcome my differences with everyone, racially, culturally. Um, Yeah, I fit into those spaces that were programmed to keep me out. But for a while, I was happy to be there. And there are even good memories. And thank Buddha, cults like IBLP saw me as less than human. I was definitely not in danger of being lured into those kinds of culty Christian spaces. Yeah, they didn't want quivers full of people like me in their GOP Jesus army. So while I recognize some levels of religious trauma around the concept of hell, purity culture, white nationalism, CCM, talk about trauma. I didn't leave because of any of it. My leaving had more to do with logic, observation, empathy, and seeking truth and beauty. My guest today is a newly published author, Sarah Henn Hayward. Her book, Giving Up God, published by our beloved Lake Drive Books, is so much more than a deconstruction story. Sarah's story is an example of the best, most committed Christians seeking answers only to realize, yeesh, there are none, or, or the answers we got kind of suck. Sarah is someone who, if she had remained a Christian, would have been one of the good ones who understood systemic racism, patriarchy, and the insidious nature of purity culture. But really, once you understand how the Bible doesn't make a lot of sense, and you start pulling at the frayed edges of today's Christian culture and pseudo-theology, well, people like Sarah and me simply can't believe if we're honest. Hello, everyone. My name is Sarah Hen Hayward. I go by she, her, and I am the author of the book, Giving Up God, Resurrecting a Spirituality of Love and Wonder. Which is out now, and we're going to encourage everyone to go buy it. Uh, There'll be links in the show notes. So yeah, (laughs) welcome to Chapel Probation. This is great. Thank you. So uh, yeah, I read the book and, and loved it. It was there's so many amazing insights for so for for someone who's still a Christian. You you fought the good fight. You 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 had so I many really interesting tried. views. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and and I resonated with that because that was me too. Um, I'm older, mm-hmm. than you, so I, I was like ten years ahead of you on that same journey where you're just trying to make sense of it all, and and in doing trying so, to make it work. I didn't want to leave. Like, yeah, right. In doing so, we kind of just talked ourselves right out. of uh, the faith altogether, <laughs> but that was our journey. And there's some people who are still in it. And so people who listen to this podcast, there's progressive Christians and there's atheists and everything in between. And so this mm-hmm. is going to be great. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your childhood and your upbringing, uh, as, as a Christian that led you to campus crusade for Christ. Yes. They dropped the, they go by crew officially now. They yeah, got crew. rid of the crusade. Cool. Yes, because they realized that was not the best connotation. Um, yeah, yeah, so I grew up in. Hasn't aged well. <laughs> no, kind of a, a scar on church history, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah. So I grew up in the Midwest outside of Chicago, and uh, I grew up in a Christian household. My parents had, they had converted. Um, a little bit older in life. They converted 
as they were getting married. Um, and for my dad, really more after I was born. My mom was kind of the first one who got converted via a Campus Crusade uh, member. And they still support that person. They've paid them throughout their entire career. Um, but Whoa. so they raised us going to church and Sunday school and all of it. So I was just immersed in religion from day one. Um, and I took it seriously. I really felt that I had a close personal relationship with God. I had a regular journal practice. I read the Bible and I was into it. I really thought that God knew me on an individual level that God loved me. Thankfully, my church wasn't really heavy on the kind of original sin doctrine that we were all a bunch of wretched, horrible people. It, I'm sure that was there. Maybe just my personality let that roll off because uh, that didn't feel yeah. good. But I grew up really thinking God <laughs> knew me and loved me and gave me that sense of identity. Um, and so, yeah, I was involved in youth group as a kid. I did Awanas as a little kid, like all the all the classic evangelical church things. Um, and then for college, I decided to go to Marquette University in Milwaukee uh, because by then I had decided I wanted to be a physical therapist and they had a really good program. And so that was for me going to a Catholic school. Um, kind of a, a risk because my church grew up. I guess not explicitly saying, but generally the vibe was that Catholics were not real Christians or were not true right. believers because they had all these weird, you know, they worshipped Mary, I thought, and they prayed to saints. Mary. And, yeah. Yeah. So they were, oh. Um, so, but I went to this Catholic school, which was a good experience. It showed me, oh, there are different styles of being a Christian, and these are legit believers as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But being there, I sought out an evangelical style group on campus so I could be around true believers, uh, so to speak. And so right away I got involved with Campus Crusade. They were kind of the bigger group on our campus. We had InterVarsity, um, but Campus Crusade, I think, just had a, a stronger hold on. They had the better music and the better meetings. And I don't know, I guess it was the fun oh, group. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the cool yeah. one. Yeah. So, and there was a big incoming freshman group of girls in my year. So I made some really good friends who I'm still friends with to this day. And so just the social draw of Crusade was pretty strong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got very involved in crew. I originally was in Bible studies with them. I did all of their retreats. My crew on campus did a lot of like a fall retreat in the winter. Um, the big one in Minneapolis we went to. And I uh, ended up becoming a small group leader at some point. And so I was, yeah, I was in it um, for a while, probably through my junior year of college. And that's when I started to rub up against some pretty uncomfortable friction and decided it was time to leave crew, not the faith, Ooh, like, but in, crew. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, was that friction was in the in the organization itself, not necessarily in, in the faith? Right. Yeah, it was... Yeah. The friction started there with, um, obviously, Crusade. They're very focused on evangelism and witnessing and sharing your faith was a huge focus of the group, not just personal growth and, and your personal relationship with God. And so they encourage slash strongly peer pressured us to like hand out tracks on campus and be out yep. there on the sidewalk accosting More strangers and... Yes. And I really did not like that. It felt fake and shallow yeah. and aggressive <laughs> and obnoxious. And so um, specifically at, I'm blanking on the name, but the big retreat we do in the winter, that's a whole bunch of schools coming together in Minneapolis. Um, mm -hmm. I want to say TRX, that might be the name. Uh, they had everybody break into small groups and drive out into the city and knock on strangers' doors to witness to them. And I did not want to do that. <laughs> um, and so I told my the leader of my little group, I said, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. I do not want to go knock on a random person's door to talk about Jesus. And I got placed with uh, an adult chaperone, essentially. And they said, we'll go with you. And you don't have to to speak, but you, this is an experience kind of that we want you all to have. And I wasn't allowed to just stay back at the hotel. I had to go. Yeah. Um, and with a leader, yeah. no less, to kind of make sure I followed the script. 
And uh, I just remember the way I handled that particular experience was I, the first person who answered the door uh, looked very much at the time what I would have said was like a new age hippie. She was a white woman with dreadlocks and had crystal necklace. And um, if memory is correct, which memories are notoriously faulty, but I want to say she had a, a guy in there who was like walking around half naked, <laughs> clearly was enjoying her life and having a fun time. Yeah. And I just felt yeah. like a deer in the headlights. This is like, gonna go what great. the hell am I? Yeah. What am I saying here? <laughs> so I think I asked her just, we're doing a spiritual survey was sort of the in that they gave us to start the conversation. Right. with. And so we're doing the spiritual survey. And I'm just curious if you have a spiritual belief. And I think she said something along the lines of, yes, you know, I believe in the universe or, you know, some sort of spiritual but not religious kind of answer. And my response to her was just, how is that working out for you? <laughs> and she said something, you know, deflected, oh, no, I'm good. Life's yeah. fine. You know, get out of here, basically. Yeah. So I was able to escape fairly quickly and I didn't give her the whole come to Jesus spiel. Um but that was such an uncomfortable experience. And so that was, for me, the point that I was done with Campus Crusade. Yeah, yeah. I, I was part of a Campus Crusade sponsored group when I was in high school. And they sent us out to do that mm -hmm. very thing. And mm -hmm. I hated it, too. I just felt like this is the most unnatural way to, to introduce someone mm -hmm. to something that is very deeply held by me. And it's very relational. And it just seems so shallow, like you said. And right. No follow then, up. There's no relationship right, established. Right. Yeah. And then there were people that like acted like they loved doing this. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Like this. Mm -hmm. Are you a sociopath? Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't read the room. You know, like <laughs> nobody. They had at the retreat a like a thermometer that they were filling in. <laughs> Souls yeah. saved that saved. weekend. I mean, it was gross. Yeah. It was so. I know. Ugh. It was icky. It, it's like a multi-level marketing <laughs> scheme, you know, it's, yep, it's, except totally. that you don't keep in contact uh, with the, <laughs> the people you, you, uh, yeah. you make the sale to. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was a big turnoff. I'd say there was one other pivotal moment in my crusade days that uh, contributed to my exit that I write about a little more in the book of um, as my, my views on homosexuality started to morph and change. Uh, that certainly started to rub up wrong against the accepted views of crusade. So I had made a friend in college who was openly gay and he was lovely. I loved him. Um, he was a really great guy and he even still identified as a Christian himself. And so that right. got me questioning and wondering how is that possible and how does that work? Um, and so I had, I stumbled across a documentary by Daniel Karslake called For the Bible Tells Me So. And that yep, film yep. is geared. Yeah, it's it's really well done. And it's it's geared toward parent, Christian parents who have a gay child um, and kind of giving them tools and and thoughts to consider of how they can be affirming and supportive of their child. And it goes through several examples of different families, some who handle it well, some who handle it extremely poorly. Um, and that movie, it had a few asides into the biology of maybe why people may identify as homosexual and it gets it into the biblical interpretation and specifically the Sodom and Gomorrah story and showing how homosexuality, especially a actual love and committed relationship is absolutely not the point of that story, not remotely what they're discussing. And so that film for me was a complete 180. I was instantly convinced homosexuality is not a sin. This is not a wrong lifestyle. We are doing the harm by saying so, and we are hurting these vulnerable people. Um, and so I showed the movie to my Campus Crusade small group, and that did not yeah, fly. Yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> yeah, I got uh, a stern talking to by a male freshman boy leader in the in crew, Um Basically, you know, telling me off for steering all these young, innocent girls away from the truth and and God's holy truth. And so that uh, was a big turn off his reaction. And I think that was the point I officially stopped leading and stopped going and and all of that to crew. Yeah, yeah. 
the in the book, I was struck by how he didn't have any arguments against the movie. He was just like, it's just wrong. It's it's just mm-hmm. no. <laughs> He's, he, he didn't even watch it. Uh, I don't think it was one of the. No, girls right. I think you mentioned was, that. Yeah. Right. Like somebody was disturbed and reported it to him and he just came after me totally uneducated and just to slap my wrist. (laughs) Yeah. I, I was, I watched a screening of that movie with our underground illegal LGBTQ club at APU. Mm. And it was a moving experience because people had been disowned by their families who were watching it. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of crying and there was a lot of, Oh, it, it was tough. Mm, I bet. Um, but it's kind of that movie is kind of like a litmus test for where people are. You know, if if they're mm. even thinking or questioning at all about the issue, the movie's going to hit mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> but if they're mm-hmm. super sure that the Bible says it's wrong, then they're like, oh no, no, they, they can't argue against yeah. it because it uses the Bible. <laughs> but right, yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, oof, that is a. The the other th- things that you write about in your sort of I saw your whole first half of the book as different points of deconstruction. Do I, is, would you agree? Um, yes. Yeah. From your scoliosis kind of issue uh, as it came to the up. campus crusade. Yeah. Yeah. Your your trips your your study abroad in Australia. Uh, the Fiji factors large in it, and mm-hmm. I want to talk about that later. But yeah. You you met someone who was who was Muslim and that had an effect on you. I mean, you you were you were a terrible evangelical, and, and I mean that in as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so, you. <laughs> so yeah, when as you look as you look back, you know, do, do you see like how all these were are like steps along the way to, down the slope uh, to. It certainly looks like that now, although I'm like, ah, slippery slope arguments are a logical fallacy. Yeah, no, I don't like that term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. (laughs) But it does look like that. I mean, these are points points of significance on the deconstruction journey. Um, Yes. Yeah. And for me, it was really just faith expansion and growth. You know, I was still, in my mind, still very much a Christian. Um, it was just kind of a new definition of Christian and a much more progressive, open-minded Christian. And that's where I had expected to land for the rest of my life right. was yeah, me too. in a more open, inclusive style of faith. Um, so, yeah, certainly the plan was not to go all the way to deconversion, but ultimately that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you just t- talk a little bit about that moment where you realized um Despite your your best efforts to reconcile the world around you and your and your experiences with your faith, you decided um, you didn't believe anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think I had been wrestling. I I'm the type of person who spends time on a regular basis asking these big questions and thinking deep thoughts. So there's just like a low background conversation happening all the time in my mind, and it had started turning more and more to questions of suffering and free will and how could God do this? How could God make this world the way that it is being supposedly omniscient, knowing it would be this bad and contain so much horrific suffering for so many millions of people um, who is also supposedly the very definition of love. So knowing it'd be this bad, supposedly being made of love and being all powerful and enough to, he could have made any universe in any way with any laws. And this is what we got <laughs> where there's people yeah. that are born enslaved and spend their whole life not knowing freedom and died that way for thousands of years. You know, just going back in time, just so many humans have only known tragedy and maybe brief glimpses of joy or peace. But for so many, that's just elusive the whole time. And so. I had been thinking through that a lot, and a friend had sent me some books on free will by Sam Harris, and so I'm starting to question the excuse of free will. That's what I had used to explain evil and suffering, that God had to let us make choices because otherwise we're puppets, and that doesn't count if we choose to love God as a puppet, but that 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 gift of free will, quote-unquote, opened the door to suffering because we could make choices that were unhealthy and, and harmful. But as I thought more deeply about that, it just stopped being a satisfactory answer. And especially in 2020 with all the racial tension bubbling up with George Floyd's murder, 
Um, and I had been watching and paying attention to a lot of that since Trayvon Martin's murder. And that was getting harder and harder to stomach and to see, again, this is the world we have where these powerful people uh, have gotten to be in charge and they keep playing chess with the rest of our lives and acting with total impunity and just, yeah, it, free will became a uh, a crutch I couldn't lean on anymore, thinking maybe we all have free will, but what about that person born enslaved? Do they have the free will to just live the life that they would right. want and marry who they want and keep their children? Like so many people's free will is so limited that right. maybe we have it, but the constraints on it are such that it's hardly, I don't know, it just wasn't a good enough uh, explanation anymore. And so kind of that question of evil and suffering. And again, if I can think of a world, a universe where there is free will, but without the option of murder and rape, you know, we don't have the option <laughs> to grow wings and fly right now. Like our free will is constrained as it is. Just constrain it further and don't allow this, some of these horrible, you know, genocide and these wars and all these awful things we see happening today. Um, if I could think of a kinder, more loving world and I'm not God, then either God's pretty wimpy or uncaring yeah. or yeah, didn't know it yeah. was going to be this way. Yeah, something's wrong. Some part of the story is a lie or doesn't work. And so that was kind of my big schism point. Yeah, totally relate. Same, same, <laughs> same here. Um, you mentioned uh, race and, and George Floyd as in, uh, I think you mentioned Tra Trayvon Martin first in your book as sort of a wake up point for you. Mm -hmm. And then George Floyd as a wake up call for, for a lot more people. Cause that was televised. Um, yes. Yeah. As have you, you've clearly thought about this more than most white folks have. Um, so yeah, how how did you come to a place where you could actually see that and make um and alter your worldview based on mm -hmm. how BIPOC folks are are treated in the country and and, and even in the church? Mhm. Mm well, I think I'm I've always been a curious person um and and like to look at the world and analyze it as I'm watching and I'm a reader, so I always am looking to books um for education and guidance and entertainment. I read novels too, but I read a lot of nonfiction. And so um, when Trayvon Martin was killed, I was just so struck by that. He was a child and he had done nothing to bring that upon himself and his murderer got to walk free. And I just was so shocked by that, that that led me to follow some different accounts and and hear people talk about, you know, this isn't new. It was new to me to be aware of the ugliness of racism that is still very present in our society. Um, and so that started me on a journey of of self-education. So I just started reading book after book. I've read all of Isabel Wilkerson's books. I read When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullors, which was a really, really eye-opening book for me. Um, so you want to talk about race. I read... Me and the White Supremacy, I just started consuming content uh, by BIPOC authors and just hearing what the world was like for them. It's a different world than I, as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl, get to walk through. And, um, yeah, kind of learning about that and being – I thankfully, I just – I wasn't able my, – my white guilt didn't throw up a wall to where I didn't want to listen. It, it gave me empathy to realize yeah. – oh shit, like the planet I live on is not the same planet other people are experiencing and that's not right. And I should be not only educating myself, but trying to to fix that and make it a little bit better in whatever small way I can. So I was happy I wanted to include that conversation in the book because um, it was pivotal for yeah. me spiritually, but also just as a human, that's a real problem that we still have that more white people should be worried about and caring about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was I was so glad to get to that point in the book. Um, cause I don't think all, um, white folks get there. <laughs> um, cause there's so much to unpack with just, just the theology and, and the religious trauma of evangelical culture. Um, mm. not, not everyone is willing to go that, like you said, that next step to be, to feel uncomfortable and to make these realizations and then, and then accept that those and under, and really have a heart 
a sympathy for for people. A lot of people stop going to church. A lot of people decide they don't believe in God or the Bible, or they redefine their faith to accommodate the worldview that they've developed. But in this deconstruction world, it really seems like very few white folks are interrogating their views of whiteness and race and social justice. So hearing someone like Sarah talk about educating herself and having empathy for other people living vastly different lives is such a beautiful thing and kind of rare. And another component of leaving faith is the effect it has on personal relationships. If you're lucky, you bring those relationships with you into your deconstruction. But it doesn't always work out that way and it can be really hard. But the good news is that all the wonderful things about church and faith can be found elsewhere. Every time I read a book like this and and it, and it does so artfully and eloquently talk about that journey of com- becoming aware of race issues, it's just it gives me hope for the for the future. Mm-hmm. Before we started recording, we were talking about like, well, it's where are we where do we go? Are we always going to talk about Christianity? You know, we've talked now oh, 23 minutes about looking back at this faith that we don't have anymore, but it's always going to be there, right? Uh, affect mm-hmm. in contrast to, to what, what we are, what we, where we're going. So as, as you get to this post faith part of your life, which is complicated because your family is still Christian, your, your immediate family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, however much you're comfortable sharing, like how, how has that been um, navigating that as a family unit? Yeah, that's been hard. Uh, My husband and I are very compatible. So our marriage, we've been married for 11 years now, and our marriage has honestly been quite easy. Like we don't really fight much. We don't have a lot of conflict because we up until now have seen eye to eye on all the big things on on, we were both very progressive Christians. We saw eye to eye on politics, the way we wanted to raise our kids gently, things like that. So this is the first rough edge that we've had to rub up against. Um, And it's hard. It's interesting. His reaction, he takes it personally that I left, that he didn't, I don't know. It's not that we were a patriarchal, he was the spiritual head of the household kind of a thing, but yeah, in his mind, it's a bit of a personal failure to him that I've left, which is, I can understand that, but that's a little tricky for me to even wrap my mind around. Um, because we are individuals that make our own choices in life still. But yeah, yeah, so we're still working through it. He just had a meeting with our pastor yesterday um, to talk about some of this and where it's at. Because he's not, he doesn't believe in hell. He's not afraid for my soul or worried that I'm going to be suffering for eternity now, thankfully. Um, my parents, I think that's their concern. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. But yeah, it's just new, new territory and we're figuring it out slowly. Our kids are pretty young, so we haven't really announced to them that mommy doesn't believe in God anymore or anything. Um, We had already been trying to expose them to a lot of different worldviews at a young age so that they wouldn't grow up thinking evangelical Christianity is the only way to, to think. So they know about other religions. They know some people are not religious at all. One of my daughter's best friends doesn't go to church. Her mom's agnostic. So I just talk about other people when I'm really talking about myself as I explain to them like well, yeah. some people think this some and people. I don't yet say I'm one of them but <laughs> um, yeah. so yeah we're we're slowly figuring that out and that'll be I think an ongoing journey for a while um, yeah so thankfully we are committed to figuring it out you know it hasn't created that big of a schism to where we're looking at separating or anything like that which yeah. I know for some right. is the path it goes Um, So I'm grateful. And I'm grateful my parents, despite being much more conservative, traditional evangelical folks, um, they've been able to still love me despite all of this. And still they talk to me. They're coming out to visit for the holidays. So it's a bit of an elephant in the room. And they certainly let me know that they're praying for me more often than they (laughs) normally used to say. Um, But we are able to to see past it, which I'm grateful because 
I've had to do the same thing for them with their politics and not supporting a lot of their views lately. So it goes both ways. <laughs> yeah, your, your parents were fascinating, uh, not characters, people in the book because <laughs> they were so cool when you were growing up. Like you were drinking and they were like, <laughs> they didn't encourage it, but they were like, eh, you know, be, careful. be smart yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And so you and I are fortunate in that way. Like my parents let me listen to whatever music I wanted to or um, – uh, they wouldn't mm-hmm. have been happy with me drinking, but, you know, they were definitely cooler about, you know, those gray areas than most of my friend's parents were. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So that it's, it's in the, but on the other hand, you said your dad, you mentioned the book, your dad listens to Rush Limbaugh or used to listen to Rush Limbaugh or, yeah. or you know, it has mm-hmm. some very conservative <laughs> views. And so it's like, it's fascinating. You know, people are compl- complex, you know, they have yes. all these layers. Um. Totally. But yeah, I feel you on the family thing. Like I've been out for like almost 20 years now. And so it's we've we my parents and I have entered a civil still caring phase where they're not trying to keep asking me to come back to church. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, over time, I think it kind of and it's, and it's like they're, I brought up your parents because they sound they sound like they're equipped to be able to handle this relationship with you as as you go forward. Yes, um, I think they I think they've known people who severed relationships with their kids or they knew right. you know the whole Trump uh election cycle was really rough on us and I for a minute was considering like do I want cuz my parents voted for him both times and had to think like gosh do I want them and that influence in my life and around my kids and so I was almost at a point of like do I need to throw up a really strict boundary here? Um, and I think they saw other families breaking up or, you know, fighting over Trump. And I think, again, I maybe that's where I got my open mindedness and curiosity from. They modeled it because my dad was able to recognize how toxic that angle of it was. And my dad self-elected to quit watching Fox News. <laughs> I don't know how uh, committed to wow. that if he still tunes in once in a while. But yeah, so they they're able to see clearly for certain things, uh, not the whole way, the whole distance I would like them sure. to, but, um, but yeah, that's so progress. They, they value our relationship. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Quitting Fox news. That's like quitting smoking or something that uh, there has to be <laughs> like withdrawals. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he recognized yeah. it was making his blood pressure go up and making him angry <laughs> at the world. And oh, he didn't feel yeah. good watching that crap. So yeah. Woo. Kudos to him. <laughs> seriously so yeah and again that, that's another thing about your book that gave me hope like even in things that on on paper look dire uh there's there's like that element of well there's some hope there there's some some wiggle room mm-hmm. um yes so you went you mentioned fiji a couple of times but in, in both sections mm-hmm. beginning and toward the end of your book and you you, t- you talk about uh, I forget where you were. You heard a family singing around like a fire or something. Mm-hmm. And that really hit you. Can you can you describe that that moment? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough in college to study abroad in Australia. And during that semester, we had a week off like a spring break. Um, and so I decided to go to Fiji and do this tour of one of the main islands, Vitu Levu. And I was with a couple friends from uni and we did this big group tour that took us all around the island and we'd stay at different hostels along the way. And uh, it was amazing. It was 10 of the best days of my life. I still think of often and fondly. But that particular evening uh, was towards the end of the tour. And we had gone, we had taken this huge tour bus. It was like 40 to 50 of us doing the tour uh, and driven this bus through a farmer's sugarcane field to his property where there was some natural uh, hot springs and mud pits. And so we had like this Fijian mud bath in just this random farmer's field um, that I hope got compensated from the tour for letting this happen. And then we got to rinse off in the hot springs afterwards. um, And it was just already a very magical, beautiful night. And the sun was setting. So the hot spring actually felt nice. Um, it had been warm all day and as we were leaving that our bus broke down in the middle of this farmer's property and so 
we all got out of the bus and we're sitting kind of in the sugarcane field, like in between the stalks of sugarcane, because it wasn't even a road. It was just two little tire tracks for the bus to go down. So they were figuring out how to get the busted up bus out of there and bring us a new one. So we had to wait a while and sitting in the field, we were all just kind of, it was now dark. So we're looking up at the stars, which there's so much less light pollution there. So that was magical to see so many more stars in the sky and just having this very beautiful moment. And there was another person living nearby in the, in this area, a family, and they had um, a kind of a more traditional hut style home. So there wasn't like a front door that we would think of. It was just more of an open house. And so I could hear them in their house and somebody, it looked like a whole multi-generational family in there. So one of the younger boys was playing on a drum and the family was singing and just kind of eavesdropping on this little perfect peaceful moment of, of tranquility and connection through music with this family was just so touching. And it just, yeah, I felt like I was somehow part of it, even though clearly I was an outsider looking in on that little moment, but just having already been bathed in the Fijian mud and the hot springs and laying under the stars, it was just one of those transcendent moments. I haven't done mushrooms yet, but it felt like something that you would experience while on mushrooms, just of a connection to beauty in the universe. And yeah, it was just one of those pinch me moments. Yeah. First of all, I recommend the mushrooms. I did that once. (laughs) But yeah. I'm curious. What what struck me was one of the things that deconstruction communities lament is the loss of those transcendent worship moments, you know, like in a in a big service mm. where you're all everyone's singing together. And that sense of unity and togetherness and community and the divine mm-hmm. they think is is unique to their church or their or their intervarsity mm-hmm. or campus crusade, you know. And really right. it's everywhere in this world and and you get that same feeling and that same sense of of oneness anytime you sit there and sing with people you know go to karaoke <laughs> go to um right uh, a, con- a concert <laughs> yeah, a concert you know like live it's, music right mm-hmm. and i'm i'm always i don't i try to be sensitive and gentle because people are hurting and, and broken after church but like uh it's out there mm-hmm. you don't have to l- Lament. I mean, you can lament the loss of, of church because that was important to you, but you can get sure. uh, that same sense of connectivity and community and divine outside um, in different, if you look 100%. for it, you know, it's just, it's not going to be in the, in outside. The yeah. To yeah. me, I feel that frequently in just nature. And so, yeah, the second half of my book yeah. is a lot of travel stories yeah. of just yeah, being out there in nature and having that same sense of being a small part of this bigger whole that is, you know, the natural world or or the universe. And yeah, definitely you can find those moments out there. It doesn't have to exist in a church chapel setting. Yeah. And that's where I was going with this exactly. Um I'm a I'm an outdoors person too. Love hiking and we me and my mm-hmm. family fly fish and camp and even when I was a Christian, I think when I was a Christian, you know, to me it was confirmation of God and his glory and uh, and mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. But even without God, it's just like to your point, you just feel like so small and so both insignificant and significant uh, when you just mm-hmm. really take the time to observe the the, the amazing things in, in nature and, and in the world. Then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season and she endures perhaps being smacked one night and then she seeks help from the church. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus <laughs> and by God's grace it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law and I am tired of communities of faith being weaponized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it. Hi, I'm Nate, producer and co-host on the Full Mutuality podcast. Let's talk about inequality. It's everywhere. Whether it's rooted in race, gender, ability, or sexuality, there's bound to be an imbalance in power, influence, representation, and access. 
On our show, we want to explore areas of religion, culture, and society where justice is needed in order to bring about true mutuality. I hope you'll join us for some enlightening, fun, and at times uncomfortable conversations as we envision a world where everyone can live free from systems and structures that keep us from being truly equal. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, fullmutuality.com, to find a list of all the platforms we're available on. Subscribe today and we'll see you on the Full Mutuality Podcast. Hey everyone, I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village Podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. So as we finish up this conversation, we venture into territory that doesn't always get discussed. Not not here and, and a lot of other places. We, we tend to be a community that looks back a lot. Necessarily so. There's a lot to look back at. But we look back at the harm done to us. We look back at things like toxic patriarchy and fucked up purity culture. But Sarah has clocked some serious mileage for in a short amount of time in her life post-faith. It's not a lot of years, but it's definitely a lot of experience and perspective. I'm kind of jealous and impressed by Sarah's ability to observe and seek beauty and truth so early in her de deconstruction. I feel fortunate to have read her book, and I actually learned a lot from her experiences and, her, and from her observations. We don't need the God or Jesus of the Bible, but we do seek the divine. We seek beauty in this fucked up world, and it's a privilege to be able to do so. And anyway, if that's God, cool. So yeah, let's, let's mm -hmm. head in that direction. Tell me about some of your um, experiences and how that has contrasted uh, your, your previous religious points of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say um, I feel that sense of connection more now than I ever did before, specifically in the natural world. And a lot of that came from learning finally as an adult about evolution, because I had plugged my ears against that in yeah. school growing up um, and seeing that long chain of development from these tiny single celled organisms into mammals into primates and us um to me that made me feel like shit i am literally related to the entire natural world at some point yeah. we all have a distant ancestor even if it's back to that first single cell but we have a loose connection to every single creature on this planet and that is beautiful to me uh i think christianity really put a wall up between us and nature because we were the yeah. lords of creation and we were above the rest of it all. And we were supposed to be good stewards, but we were in charge of everyone else. We weren't a part of it in the same way. And now I feel like I am just one other little branch on this huge tree of evolution. And so that I, I feel more connected and uh, interrelated to everything now. And that to me has been very beautiful. So I can have moments now just... <laughs> 
I was at, I work still um, part time as a physical therapist. I am not a full time author. Uh, and so I was at work yeah. and I work at an assisted living facility. So it's mostly older folks. And one of the, uh, we have a building that's just full of folks with dementia and Alzheimer's, and they have a very pretty garden in the back. So a lot of the patients I treat there, I try to bring them outside when the weather's good because uh, everybody just feels better in some fresh air and some sunshine. Mm -hmm. And often people do have older memories of being outdoors and people with Alzheimer's, they cling to some of those earlier memories the most compared to more recent. So I am often out there in the back and it's a very pretty little garden. And I had a day uh, one day, I just remember it's because it was one of those ordinary but profound moments where I was sitting in a chair, letting my patient rest for a minute and there's these pretty little trees back there and a light breeze was just very gently picking up the branches of the trees and the leaves were just sort of dancing on the breeze. And there's some flowers and some birds chirping. And I just felt, again, that sense of like oneness that I am part of all of this and I am connected to that tree and that tree is actually talking to that other tree and they have a relationship and there's so much beauty and complexity in nature that we're not even aware of most of the time. Um, and yeah, just in a normal little work day at 1030 in the morning on a Tuesday, I felt like I was having a spiritual moment. Uh, so it's it exists yeah. all the time if you just open your eyes and look around. You may not need to do mushrooms then because that's that's one of the things <laughs> that psychedelics usually like get people to feel like connect connected to the, the world and the universe. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned my brain going, going back to neurochemical as it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're ahead of the game. Um, you mentioned <laughs> another Fiji example where you were like scuba diving, snorkeling or scuba diving, and, you, and you're mm -hmm. seeing all these things you never knew existed. And I thought of like, man, mm -hmm. the people who wrote the Bible, the, the books of the Bible, they didn't know like 90% of the existence of in nature, you know, they, <laughs> They didn't have science. Right. They didn't have a way to go underwater. Yeah. They didn't have a way to go to space. They didn't, you know, like they didn't uh -huh. have to understand chemistry and physics. <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> the things that we don't know exist can be so eye opening to, to, to think about, not just theologically, but just, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah it just, well, that to me, it encourages that moment. humility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah, right. It, to me, exactly. it, it, yes, it says, you know, listen, we don't know. Jack shit. <laughs> like there's so many things that we haven't discovered or learned about how anything works as a physical therapist. There's still so much about our bodies that we don't understand. Chronic pain is becoming a little bit more understood, but it's still a bit of a mystery. There's there's just so many things left to to research and explore. So I think, yeah, that experience of scuba diving, that was an eye opening experience to me of my ignorance, really. It was a beautiful experience. I got to scuba dive um, 45 feet below the surface, uh, and wow. it was really special because it was Fiji, so the water was warm, and I didn't even need to wear a wetsuit, so I could feel the currents Whoa. against my skin, and it was otherworldly. I mean, really, to be down there for, I think we were down there for almost an hour and saw all these schools of fish and coral reefs and all these different uh different creatures and it was such a beautiful experience and i just remember coming up and thinking i am one of at that time whatever it was six billion seven billion people on the planet and how many billions of people will never get to scuba dive and be under water for that long and see half the stuff i just saw and it's gorgeous down there and yeah just the the ignorance struck me of like there's so many things that i don't even know are happening right now that are beautiful and i i try to focus on that sometimes like now when we're inundated with all the horrible suffering going on in gaza and ukraine and all these really ugly things happening not to tune it out and say forget them i'm going to focus on beauty but just to remember right beauty is also out there and also exists yeah yeah and everything you're saying it, it just makes so much sense but there are evangelicals that would be like, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't <laughs> fit in the order of the world that we, from where we came from. Right. It's it's mm -hmm. this this freedom to to see the world and the universe with awe and wonder instead of 
absolute certainty that it confirms, you know, the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really liberating experience to to see this world through that through that lens. Um, I I, th- I hope it's like an mm-hmm. inspiration to people listening because a lot of people are, you know, this deconstruction journey is, you know, there's so many steps along the way from the, the fresh uh, realization that I don't I don't know what I believe anymore to well, if I'm not this, and you talk about this in the book, well, then what am I? You know, what, how, mm-hmm. uh, there was a line that struck me in your book where you're like, you know, you're trying to figure out what, what label, what, what you fall under. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how all of this has sort of led to, and not that labels are important. If you have no label, mm-hmm. that's fine too. But um, mm-hmm. how, how are you defining yourself and in your worldview these days? Yeah, so in the book, I kind of wrestle with a few different options of what to to go by, because that's a, one of the first questions if you're telling somebody that you are no longer a Christian, well, then what are you instead? Yeah. Um, and so it is helpful to have some sort of prepared answer to give there. So um, the one I really liked was poetic naturalist, and that's a term I got from Sean Carroll, who is a physicist, uh, and he's got a book that I had read called The Big Picture. And that book was just educational for me to learn a lot about a lot of the science and how connected things can be. And he gets into a lot of different avenues with that and goes into philosophy. And uh, that book was very formative. I read it shortly after uh, coming away from God. And so it was kind of the first new book I had to help guide a new framework. Um, And so Poetic Naturalism talks about Naturalism is sort of the same as humanism, just the the idea that the natural world is all there is. There's no supernatural realm. There's no angels, no ghosts, no gods, no demons, none of that. It's only what we can see and touch and measure. That's what we have. That's the world. There's no secret other dimension hiding somewhere that we haven't accounted for yet. Um, And that can be a very nihilistic way of looking at the world. This is all just random and here by chance there's no designer there's no greater purpose to existence um and so the poetic piece kind of comes back against that nihilistic approach of naturalism to say sure maybe in the cosmic eternal scheme of things this is all random and chaotic and none of it ultimately matters in an eternal sense but in the here and now in our lives they're rife with meaning and we can have significance and our relationships matter and our values do matter. And what we want to do with our life matters to us, maybe not to any future generations or any gods looking in from above, um, but it still matters to us. And so that's kind of the poetic piece of naturalism, which I really liked that term. That's a term that nobody has hardly heard. So I don't always want to give a whole lecture if I am telling somebody. So I've stuck with the label. I just tell people I'm an agnostic atheist, uh, strongly doubtful of a higher being, but open to admit what I don't know. And there are still some mysteries out there around, especially the origin of the universe kind of stuff. So agnostic in my beliefs of atheism. But yeah, I really like the poetic naturalist label. It's just a little more confusing. Yeah, I don't think it's confusing, but I because I resonate with it so so much. Um, I mm-hmm. I gave a chapel. I was telling you, I gave a chapel talk it, after I decided I didn't believe in God anymore. I was working at a Christian school. The students elected me to speak in chapel, and mm-hmm. I was like, "What the hell am I going to say?" You know, and and I gave a talk pretty much directly in line with what you just described, where mm. in the sense that. The divine can be found in all the beautiful things in this world, um, and we don't have to necessarily call it God. We can. Um, so when you see beauty in nature, when you see human compassion, when you see beautiful art mm-hmm. or hear beautiful music, <clears throat> when communities mm-hmm. come together and and struggle for 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 good, these are all instances <clears throat> where Christians would identify. Oh, that's the hand of God, and and but like. Maybe it doesn't have to be just that, or maybe that's that's all that matters. You know, it's uh, so yeah. I'll I'll, mm-hmm. I'll probably have a clip of it in this episode because um, mm-hmm. it caused a little controversy when I gave the talk. Um, I didn't <laughs> I'm sure. talk about Jesus enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you have you read um, you've read Bill Bryson? Have you read his long um book, The Brief History of Everything? Um, 
Yes. Yeah. About, I read that one a long time ago, so I wouldn't be able to quote it, but yeah, yeah no, but uh, all of this made me think of that. That was one of my favorite books. Uh, cause he, you know, mm-hmm. he's not a science he's and, so and anthropology and archeology span guy, but he breaks it down for us, you mm-hmm. know, like all the mysteries yeah. of the world and, and the, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Bill Bryson, who knew it was part of our deconstruction. Um, <laughs> and in a very humorous way, I laughed so hard reading his Australia book. Right? Yeah, I used to assign yeah. the mother tongue to my English composition classes about where you break down mm. the English language. Um, that's a really good one. Nice. Anyway, we don't mm. want to nerd out about uh, Bill Bryson too too much. <laughs> so as, as we head to the end here, like, what are you hoping that people will come away with? Uh, and who's who's the audience? And and what are you hoping they'll come away with reading your book? Yeah, so the audience to me um, was somebody basically like myself who had been a very devout, serious believer and had decided to walk away and not for reasons of trauma and abuse, because sadly, that is a common story. And there's a lot of books on people raised with really horrific spiritual abuse. And but that wasn't me. And I'm, I know I, I had so there have to be more of us like me who had a positive experience with religion growing up, who overall weren't too scarred by it. I do have some shame and guilt complexes that the church certainly gave me. Yeah. But um, overall, I can look back fondly, really, at my upbringing. And a lot of that's to the credit of my parents being more chill about things. But um, so I wanted a book of somebody who had a strong faith, who wasn't just kind of on the fence anyway and decided to leave, but was 100 percent in it and committed and had decided really for intellectual reasons to walk away and had now walked completely away. Cause there's also a lot of deconstruction books, you know, the Sarah Bessies and the Rachel Todd Evans who, who questioned a lot of things, but still stuck with right. God or stuck with Jesus. Right. And I couldn't find a lot that had said, peace out. I'm done, done. Um, so that's kind of who the audience is. And I hope the reason I wrote it was to reach those folks and to show them that all is not lost and you don't have to despair that your life can still have beauty and meaning and transcendence and all of that. And to kind of help, help us together create that new worldview, a new framework. Um, so I, because I'm such a huge reader, I felt like I was just trying to draw together all these resources and stories and concepts and kind of weave them into a nice little package to say, Hey, if you've left the faith, here's, here's a, a way that you could now, kind of move forward in hope and and have something to to go off of yeah yeah and yeah i i totally see that in the book it it gave as someone who's like an old person who who left a long time ago (laughs) um it's not always fun to go back through the process but but your book is so filled with keen insights all along the way even when you were describing your christian days that uh, yeah, there's mm-hmm. so many, there's so much to hold on to and to feel hopeful about in your story. So yeah, I hope a lot of people Good. check it out and um, we'll have links Thanks. to it. It's out now as, as people are listening to this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Chapel Probation. Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure, Scott, and an honor to, to be here. Sarah Han Hayward's book, Giving Up God, is available now wherever you get your books. And I hope you do. It's it's a great read. And like my book, Asian American Apostate, shameless plug, it covers both the process of deconstruction and the development of a life after faith. And spoiler, that life is pretty fucking awesome in every measurable way. It's better than the life we had in church and faith. So thanks again to Sarah Hayward for doing time on chapel probation. Um, Today's bonus segment is another musical one. This conversation with Sarah got me thinking about finding the divine and beauty in the world around us. And I thought of this artist that I've really been into for the past year one Madison Cunningham. Most people know that I'm a musician. Uh, I play guitar and bass and sing a little. 
Uh, I've been in bands, been the backup guitar player for a lot of my friends on their EPs and their EP release shows. I've played with friends. I've played with people in church back in the day. So music's really important to me, obviously. And one day I was watching my one of my favorite YouTube channels, uh, Rhett Scholl. He's a guitarist based out of Atlanta. And he did a video on a, a woman named Madison Cunningham. And he was just talking about her as if she was the greatest thing ever. So I had to check it out. And he played a video of Madison playing a song called Pin It Down. And in it, her guitar playing is incredible. She plays in like standard C tuning, which is like three half steps down from a regular guitar tuning. So it's got a unique sound. And most of the song, or a lot of the song, is in seven. And if you music nerds, you know what I'm talking about. You, instead of four or eight bars, eight, eight beats in a bar, there's seven. And on top of that, she had the most amazing singing voice. The lyrics were cool. I was like, how is it possible for someone to be this good? Part Joni Mitchell, part maybe Cheryl Crow, Dolly Parton at times, and plays guitar in these incredible lines, these riffs, while she's singing flawlessly. And I saw her play live here in LA with my brother Brian, and she's the real deal. But it's not just like fancy, jazzy, proggy folk music. No, she can break your heart with a ballad. Once you girl, I'm always your girl. When I'm here, when I'm there, on a plane headed somewhere. You were staring down the cars, hoping it would be one of ours. Children and grandchildren riding your car. But how long were you waiting for me to make a left down your street? It's not if, darling, it's when was there something left on? And then she brings out like these grooves that are so simple. They sound simple, but the progressions are actually quite complex and the arrangements are exquisitely done. I can't remember when I heard you were saying. I'm 
So in reference to the interview you heard just now with Sarah Hayward, seeking truth and beauty is something that keeps us, I don't know, it makes life worth living. And when you find it in songs, in singers, in bands, in any kind of art, yeah, it just makes life that much better. This music is so much better than anything I ever heard when I was a Christian. And this is a young woman. She's in her like late 20s, I think. Super talented, incredible voice, and just her artistic vision just makes you want to believe in something bigger than ourselves. Now, I don't know what that is, but I'm thrilled to be seeking it out with all of you. So, yeah, this is Madison Cunningham. You should definitely check out. She's got a couple of records out and, a, and an EP or two. Amazing YouTube videos. There's there's a video of her singing one of her beautiful songs in a chapel in like France, and it's just hauntingly beautiful. So anyway, thanks for listening to Chapel Probation. We'll be back with another episode next week. Have a great week. Bye.